Yes, thank you. I'm very honored to be here uh, at the invitation of the Thomistic Institute. And uh, um, it's a very different milieu from what I'm used to at Umeå University. If you look at the PowerPoint design there, you can see Northern Lights. That's very common up, up there in the region where I'm from. And you can also see, if you look at the logo of the university where I teach, Umeå University, that we have reindeers in our logo. And I don't know how common reindeers are here in Poland, but up there it's, it's quite common. So, I guess the question you're wondering now is, uh, are there really any Thomists up there in the north, in the land of Santa Claus? And uh, there are not many, but there are actually hopeful signs of a Thomistic renaissance also in Scandinavia. So I'm very grateful for the Thomistic Institute for this kind invitation to talk here at uh, uh, St. John Paul II Catholic University. And I also want to thank the organizers, all the people mentioned here, and uh, Hicham and Father Duma for their kind introductory remarks. Okay, Thomistic metaphysical realism. Uh, it would be almost a crime not to start this lecture with a quote by St. John Paul II, since this is his old teaching catheter. And uh, the inspiration for this talk about Thomistic realism comes from St. John Paul's encyclical Fides et Ratio. In this encyclical, the Pope praises what he calls St. Thomas's realism. He writes, looking unreservedly, unreservedly to truth, the realism of Thomas could recognize the objectivity of truth and produce not merely a philosophy of what seems to be, but a philosophy of what is. And the philosopher Alistair McIntyre has described the whole encyclical Fides et Ratio as a philosophical argument in favor of Thomistic realism. The encyclical starts with a picture of the human being as a seeker of truth. The search for answers to the big questions about the meaning of life and the origin of the world is an essential aspect of human life, and everybody is therefore, according to the Pope, a philosopher in a sense. It is unthinkable, St. John Paul writes, that a search so deeply rooted in human nature would be completely vain and useless. The capacity to search for truth and to pose questions itself implies the rudiments of a response. Human beings would not even begin to search for something of which they knew nothing or for something which they thought was wholly beyond them. So what then are the conditions that must be satisfied if the human quest for truth is not to be in, in vain. The answer that the encyclical gives is that truth must be objective and the mind must be capable of conforming itself to reality. In other words, only realism as a philosophical stance is capable of making sense of the human search. McIntyre interprets John Paul as saying that the necessary conditions for the possibility of the completion 
of the human questioning enterprise are just those specified by Thomistic realism. And I very much agree with St. John Paul and McIntyre about the importance and fruitfulness of the realism of St. Thomas. And in this lecture I will do three things. I will start by defining realism in general and its opponent anti-realism. Then I will sketch the doctrine of Thomistic realism and taking my cue from John Paul's and McIntyre's reflections, I will discuss its importance today. Finally, I will present and discuss a number of philosophical challenges against realism and possible Thomistic responses to those challenges. I will argue that Thomistic realism is a viable stance today, in fact more viable than standard naturalistic forms of realism. So what is realism? The philosopher William Alston presents the following intuitive idea, quote, a realist is one who takes us to be confronted with hard facts that are what they are, whatever we think, believe, feel about them, however we conceptualize them or talk about them. What Alston is after here is often summarized by the term mind independence. The world is, at least in important respects, independent of human minds. Anti-realism, consequently, is the denial of the world's mind independence. A first distinction that needs to be made is between departmental and global versions of realism. Departmental versions are merely about a certain kind of entities or a limited area of discourse. So one can be a realist, for example, about unobservable scientific entities like electrons. Or one can be a realist about moral values, uh, mathematical entities or God. In this lecture, I will focus on global versions of realism, however. Versions that make claims about the world in general or the most common and basic features of it. And global realism has both ontological and epistemological dimensions. Ontological realism is the thesis that there is a world independent of thought and language. Epistemological realism is the claim that we may have knowledge of this mind-independent world and speak meaningfully and truly about it. And of course, epistemological realism presupposes ontological realism because you cannot have knowledge of a mind-independent world unless that world exists. Uh, on the other hand, ontological realism does not necessarily presuppose epistemological realism. Nevertheless, ontological realism is probably very hard to defend without at the same time embracing the doctrine of epistemological realism. If we cannot have knowledge of the mind-independent world, what reason can we have for assuming its existence? So usually ontological and epistemological realism go hand in hand. And the conjunction of these theses can be labeled metaphysical realism. Metaphysical realism should not be confused with scientific realism, which is the thesis that what exists mind independently are only the entities that the natural sciences postulate. 
not the entities that we are confronted in by in everyday life, like trees and chairs and tables, etc. Both parts of metaphysical realism admit of strong and weak interpretations. So, strong ontological realism is the claim that both the existence of the world and its structure are mind-independent. Weak versions, on the other hand, claims that the existence of the world is mind-independent. There is a mind-independent world, but its structure, such as its properties and substances, is our own creation. So this view is realist about existence, but anti-realist about structure. It is in fact identical to nominalism, since, since it denies the objective existence of universal properties. Likewise, uh, epistemological realism comes in strong and weak versions. According to a strong version, our knowledge of the world is direct. And here philosophers also often, often talk about direct realism in perception. What we perceive or what we have in mind when we know things are aspects of the world itself, not representations of that world. I will come back to this later. According to weak versions of epistemological realism, our knowledge on the world is indirect. And that means that it is mediated by mental representations, inner entities of some kind. So that was realism in general. Anti-realism then, as I've said, it's the denial of ontological and hence also of epistemological realism. But there are different versions of anti-realism. An important distinction can be made between idealism on the one hand and post-Kantian conceptual relativity on the other. The idealist position can be exemplified by the 18th century thinker Bishop Berkeley, who claimed that everything in the world is mental. Nothing exists, exists except minds and their states and contents. Post-Kantian anti-realism, on the other hand, claims that the world we experience owes its basic structure to the categories and structures of our thought. However, this type of anti-realism does not claim that everything is mental. Influential people in the conceptual relativity camp are Hilary Putnam, at least in some of his writings, and Richard Rorty. Their views differ from Immanuel Kant's original view in one important respect, at least. Putnam and Rorty believe in a plurality of conceptual schemes rather than a fixed set of necessary categories of thought, as Kant claimed. What exists and does not exist depends on how we carve up reality, so to speak, in terms of the concepts we construct. And we are free to construct different conceptual schemes depending on our interests and concerns. And this is why this version of anti-realism is often referred to as conceptual rel relativity or conceptual pluralism. And it is often motivated by the belief that the world itself does not force on us 
a certain way to conceptualize or categorize phenomena of various kinds. One might ask then, why are not conceptual relativists of the post-Kantian kind idealists? And it's actually a controversial question whether they are or not. Some people see them as closet idealists. However, one, day they can resist, one way they can resist being labeled as idealists is by pointing out that the distinction between mental and non-mental, which is central to idealism, is itself part of our conceptual schemes. So the question of whether the world is mental or non-mental <clears throat> can only have framework-relative answers. Okay, I have characterized the issue between realists and anti-realists in terms of a debate about mind independence. But there is another way of characterizing the divide between the two camps, namely in terms of different views about truth and its role for linguistic meaning. In this camp, uh, in this context, when we talk about truth, it's customary to talk about semantic realism and anti-realism. Semantic realists claim that the meaning of any statement in a language should be understood in terms of its truth conditions, the conditions under which the statement is true. And they furthermore claim that those truth conditions may transcend the recognitional capacities of the speakers of the language. This means that a statement may, may be true even though it is in principle impossible for anybody to know that it is true. Semantic anti-realists, on the other hand, deny this and claim that truth must be defined in epistemic terms, in terms relating to our capacities for knowledge. For example, in terms of warranted assertability. Now this may sound very complicated at this point, but I will come back to, to this uh, issue of semantic anti-realism later and then I will explain in more detail what, what it means. For now, let me add semantic realism as a third dimension of realism besides ontological and epistemological varieties. And one might ask, is semantic realism a necessary part of metaphysical realism? Most people believe so, but not all, as we will see. Okay, in order to relate the doctrine of St. Thomas to the contemporary debates about realism and anti-realism, let us begin by considering a development that starts in early modernity and that the philosopher John McDowell has referred to as the emigration of intelligible structure from the world. One reason why modern anti-realists deny the mind independence of the world is that they tend to see the human mind as the source of all intelligibility and intelligible structure. The prophet par excellence of this tendency was, of course, David Hume, for whom reason does not find meaning or intelligible order in the world. 
Instead, whatever intelligible order there is in the world is a product of the operations of the mind, according to Hume. This emigration of intelligible structure from the world to the mind has its background in the scientific revolution and the disenchantment of the world, which was its consequence. The meaningful order that people had previously perceived in nature was increasingly criticized as an anthropomorphic projection onto nature under pressure from the new sciences. And the logical endpoint of this development was a view of nature as an ineffable lump devoid of inherent structure and order. As is well known, Hume claimed that even causal relations are projections of the mind rather than aspects of the objective world. Perhaps the most important feature of Thomistic realism for us today is its fundamental opposition to this Humean perspective. For St. Thomas, it is not the mind that projects structure onto the world. Rather, it is the inherent intelligibility and structure of the world that makes the mind's activ activity possible. The world itself provides the human mind with the structures or forms that it needs in order to think. In fact, you can say that the human intellect is nothing other than the capacity to grasp the world in its formal element, to latch on to the forms that are objectively present in things. Those forms, of course, have one mode of existence in phys physical objects and another mode of existence in the intellect. The former has been called by Aquinas esse naturale and the later esse intentionale. The Thomistic philosopher John Haldane has fittingly described Aquinas' view of cognition and perception as a mind-world identity theory. When the mind thinks truly, it becomes formally identical with the world of which it thinks. This view of the mind and its relationship to the world is of course far removed from the view that emerges in early modernity, according to which Concepts and thoughts are purely inner entities, mental representations whose connection to the external world is merely, merely causal. The early modern picture of the mind-world relation creates a gap between mind and world, and it quickly becomes a riddle how our thoughts can be about the external world at all. How can the representations in our mind acquire their power to refer to things in the external world? How can they reach out to the world, so to speak? This problem does not exist for Aquinas since the mental domain is not closed off from the world in his view, but is essentially an openness, a capacity to receive the forms of external things. Aquinas' realism hence entails that the world is essentially thinkable or apt for conceptualization. In fact, when our concepts are completely adequate, they are nothing but the forms of the things in the world themselves, existing intentionally in esse intentionale in the mind. So the world's inherent order and intelligibility is the basis and presuppositions of the mind's operations and not the other way around as Hume thought.
Intelligibility, of course, is a phenomenon that has an intrinsic reference to mind. To say that some object or structure is in itself intelligible or apt for conceptualization is to say that it is potentially an object of understanding by a mind. But there is no reason to think that mind-independent reality would have this property of being thinkable or apt for conceptualization unless there is some kind of pre-established harmony between mind and world. And in Aquinas' thought, of course, the world is inherently intelligible because it is the product of a mind and resembles its divine cause, which is itself supremely intelligible. Human intellects are created for the purpose of exploiting the world's intelligibility, which means that intellects are teleologically aimed at understanding things. So the world is there to reflect the divine intellect, and human intellects are there to understand the world and its cause. Truth is what results when the intellect succeeds in this endeavor of understanding. And Aquinas, as you know, defines truth as the conformity of thing and intellect. Adequatio rei et intellectus. When the intellect in question is the divine mind, then truth means the conformity of natural things to it, just like works of art will conform to the ideas of an artist. However, in the case of human intellects, truth means that our intellects are conformed to the things that we think about. When the intellect's judgments agree with how things objectively are, then the intellect thinks truthfully. It has then reached, at least in part, its telos, its goal, the particular good for which it was created. A world with objective teleology and intrinsic intelligibility is necessarily a world in which things have a determinate nature that orient them to specific goals. The existence of determinate natures, in turn, implies that a distinction can be made between what a thing is essentially as opposed to accidentally. For the intellect to understand is for it to grasp the essential natures of things and to see how these natures fit into the overall order of things. That was a short summary of what I take to be uh, the thesis of Thomistic realism. And as we have seen, this is a very thick doctrine, very contentful doctrine, and dependent on a number of controversial assumptions about teleology, essentialism, and mind-world harmony. Nevertheless, several contemporary analytic philosophers who are concerned to avoid the problems created by the emigration of intelligible culture from the world, seem to gravitate towards ideas that resemble St. Thomas's way of understanding cognition and perception. John McDowell, for instance, agrees with Aquinas that there is no ontological gap between the sort of thing one can think and the sort of thing that can be the case. When one thinks truly, what one thinks is what is the case. There is no gap between thought as such and the world. And this is from his famous book, Mind and World. Okay, let us now compare
Thomistic realism with the definitions I presented earlier, it is clear, of course, that St. Thomas embraces strong versions of both ontological and epistemological realism. The world's existence as well as its structure are independent of human minds. Moreover, our perception and knowledge of the mind-independent world is direct rather than indirect. I have already recounted Aquinas' mind-world identity theory concerning cognition, the view that having knowledge about the world is for the mind to become formally identical with the states of affairs it knows. But Aquinas is also a direct realist about perception. Our sensory capacities conjoin us cognitively to the sensible features, the sensible forms possessed by external objects. Such a view might have been dismissed as naive 50 years ago, but today versions of direct realism, which are today usually called disjunctivism in analytic philosophy, are defended by many philosophers. Let's now go back to where I started, nam namely with Pope John Paul II's claim that Thomistic realism, or something very like it, is necessary in order to make sense of the human condition and our search for meaning and truth. McIntyre, following John Paul II, more specifically portrays Thomistic realism as an antidote to two influential currents in contemporary thought, namely pragmatism and nominalism. These can be regarded as versions of anti-realism. Nominalism claims that there is no mind-independent order of things. The categories we use to classify things have no intrinsic connection to how things objectively are. And to understand some phenomenon is no more than to assign it a place within some conceptual scheme which we have constructed. Pragmatism claims that the schemes we construct are justified by how well they work in our dealings with the world. The standards for judging how well something works furthermore are set by the interests and desires we happen to have at the moment. This means that what counts as true and what counts as a good explanation of some phenomenon is interest relative. And since our interests can change, there is no determinate goal or telos that our intellect, intellectual inquiries are oriented towards. There are only provisional goals that are dictated by our present desires and interests. As McIntyre points out, pragmatism and nominalism as philosophical theses have counterparts in certain attitudes that have seeped into Western culture at the level of popular imagination. McIntyre therefore talks about a pragmatism and nominalism of everyday life. A person whose self-image is shaped by the everyday versions of these doctrines will not see herself as having a determinate nature with characteristic activities and a telos, intellectual or otherwise. Instead, she will take herself to define her own nature through acts of choice 
and also to define the world she lives in by classifying and reclassifying things as she finds good. One possible way to characterize such individuals is to say that they are cognitively or epistemically curved in on themselves. Since they regard their own interests and desires as the last instance of appeal when it comes to deciding how to conceptually carve up the world, they are prevented from seeing themselves as seekers of an existential truth that transcends their present horizon. So their situation makes it difficult for them to address the big questions about the meaning of life. In fact, from this perspective, there can be no inherently big questions, since things only have importance in relation to subjective interests and desires. How should I maximize sexual pleasure is a question as big as any other on this line of thought. As McIntyre argues, individuals who learn to reimagine themselves in this way so that they become what they imagine are prevented thereby from understanding them themselves as having an ultimate end, a final good to which they are directed by their essential nature. In a similar vein, John Paul II writes about the patent inadequacy of perspectives in which the ephemeral is a and the possibility of discovering the real meaning of life is cast into doubt. This is why many people stumble through life to the very edge of the abyss without knowing where they are going. Since the publication of Fides et Ratio in 1998, the influence of everyday pragmatism and nominalism has grown in Western culture, I would say. The idea that one's gender identity is a given and not an object of choice is portrayed in many circles as an oppressive view, as is the claim that marriage by nature involves a man and a woman. The radical rejection of non-chosen givens implies, at bottom, a refusal to let one's thinking be shaped by mind-independent realities. This attitude, of course, cannot be explained merely by reference to defective philosophical doctrines such as nominalism and pragmatism. However, anti-realist sensibilities can easily be exploited by a fallen will intent on emancipating itself from the shackles of reality. For many people, it's not a question of whether it's true that gender identity is established in the womb, or whether it's true that marriage is the union of a man and a woman. It is the very idea that there could be objective truths in these areas that is rejected as incompatible with personal autonomy. So against the background of this rather bleak analysis of our contemporary cultural climate, it is easy to see the need for sound realism that can help people to reimagine themselves as seekers of objective truth. And this means that the realism of St. Thomas is needed as never before, as an antidote to some of the problematic intellectual currents that are influential today. However, there are, of course, philosophical challenges and questions that confront Thomistic realism. 
and I will now discuss what I take to be the three main challenges and indicate some possible Thomistic responses to those. The first challenge has to do with conceptual interest relativity. The philosopher Hilary Putnam has formulated this challenge in a pointed way. He claims that realism presupposes the metaphysical fantasy that there is a totality of forms or universals or properties fixed once and for all and that every possible meaning of a word corresponds to one of these forms or universals or properties. The structure of all possible thoughts is fixed in advance. Besides belief in a fixed totality of forms or properties, metaphysical realism is also, according to Putman, committed to the claim that there is a one definite totality of objects that we can classify. Against the idea of a totality of forms or properties, Putnam argues that there can be no such thing as objective forms or essences. This is because our views of what constitutes the essence of a certain thing is necessarily interest relative. As an example, he takes the opposing views of an evolutionary biologist and a molecular biologist about what the essence of a dog is. Is the fact that dogs are descended from wolves a part of the essence of being a dog or is it not? According to an evolutionary biologist who is interested mainly in the way species evolve from each other, the evolutionary origin of a certain species is part of its essential nature. While for the molecular biologist, who as such is only interested in the present genetic makeup of species, it is not part of the essence of a dog that it is descended from wolves. There could be, we could construct a synthetic dog and as long as it has the right DNA, it would count as a dog according to a molecular biology perspective. So what matters for the molecular biologist is only the present DNA, which he sees as constituting the dog's essence. And there is, according to Hilary Putnam, no interest-neutral way of settling this dispute. In a similar way, Putnam argues against the idea that there are determinate, a determinate number of objects in the world. What counts as an object depends also on our interests. And it is possible for us to carve up the world into distinct objects in many different and incompatible ways. And the world itself cannot tell us which way is the right one. For example, there is the problem of mariological sums. According to one way of looking at the world, the sum of any number of objects is also an object. While according to another view, this is not the case. So, to make it simple, two philosophers who both look into a bag with three stones in it can give different answers to the question of how many objects they see. Those who count mariological sums as objects will say seven, others will say three. 
and the world itself cannot settle this issue. And it doesn't help to assume that at some basic level, for example the level of elementary particles, there are some basic objects and everything else are mariological sums of those objects. Quantum physics has shown that at this level of reality, particles are very fluid, non-object-like entities that don't even have a determinate number. So anti-realists therefore typically argue that there can be two or more complete theories of the world which are empirically equivalent. They are both compatible with all the empirically, empirical evidence, yet logically incompatible with each other from the realist's point of view. For example, theories of space-time can be formulated in one or two mathematically equivalent ways. Space-time can be described either in terms of an ontology of points, according to which regions of space-time are defined as sets of points. Or, space-time can be described in terms of an ontology of regions, where points are defined as convergent sets of regions. Anti-realists claim that the world itself cannot tell us which description is correct, and if this is true, then it seems that the world has a different structure or basic ontology depending on which conceptual schemes we choose, either points or regions. And this, of course, is an anti-realist conclusion. The general conclusion that anti-realists draw is that there can be no privileged description of which objects and properties exist. And so what exists is relative to our conceptual schemes. Okay, that was the challenge. What does the Thomist have to say in response? Well, Putnam's example about the interest relativity of the evolutionary biologists and the molecular biologists' different accounts of the essence of a dog can be countered by saying that both perspectives contribute partial accounts. John Haldane says that an inanimate essence, such as a dog's, is not a one-dimensional physical pattern, but an intergenerational principle of organization. The identity and individuation conditions of species have structural, material and historical aspects. So it's not an easy thing to determine the essence of a living creature, and in order to do so, many factors and parameters will have to be taken into account. Macrostructure or morphology is one such parameter, but inner structure such as DNA is at least equally important. Sometimes morphology and genetic structure point in different directions. For example, a certain animal might be genetically more alike a member of another species than an abnormal member of its own species. In such cases, additional principles of community will have to be taken into account, and one such principle is common descent. Hence, according to Haldane, morphology, internal structure and reproductive hist history combine to provide an answer to the question of specific identity. For example, what is the essence of a dog? What about objects then? How can a Thomist respond to the claim 
that objects can only be individuated in relation to different conceptual schemes. According to Haldane, Atomist has no reason to deny that we can adopt a variety of different ontologies when we describe the world and that things can be categorized in different ways depending on our interests. Some objects can be said to exist only relative to a certain conceptual scheme, for example a certain meriological sum of arbitrary things. Say for example the sum of all the stones in my yard. This is an interest relative object. However, there are also objects that have a natural inherent principle of identity, such as a substantial form. Moreover, different objects can have different degrees of objective unification. The highest degree of unification belongs to natural substances such as animals and plants, in which matter is organized by an inherent teleological principle. There are also substances unified by an extrinsically imposed form, namely artifacts. At a lower level of the scale, there are objects that lack a teleological principle, but that are held together by physico-mechanical bonding, for example. And at the lowest level, we have mere aggregates, such as a pile of stones or arbitrary meriological sums. The point here is that Object is an analogical term. It is therefore false from a Thomistic point of view to say that realism entails that there is one fixed sum of all possible objects. The paradigmatic objects are natural substances, but the concept of an object can be analogically extended so as to comprise many other phenomena as well. So what about the claim that two global theories of the world can be empirically equivalent and yet logically incompatible? We remember the example about points and regions. Well, even if this possibility exists, which is controversial, it still does not follow from the Thomist point of view that there is no fact of the matter as to which of the two theories is the true one, if any. From a Thomist perspective, only a theory whose concepts formally match the objective structure of the world is true. And if two theories are logically incompatible, then only one of them can possibly capture the true form of things. It is of course another question how we can come to know which of the two theories is true, if both predict the same observations. This however is an epistemological problem rather than a metaphysical one. This response to the anti-realist appeals to formal causality, which the Thomist assumes is as real a feature of the world as efficient causality, what we normally call causality. A similar appeal to formal causality is also effective against Hilary Putnam's so-called model theoretic argument against realism and Willard van Orman Quine's so-called indeterminacy of translation arguments. These are very complex arguments and I will not recount them here, but according to these arguments there is simply too many ways in which our linguistic concepts can be mapped onto the world. 
The reference of our ter terms and concepts is not fixed by the totality of causal relations that obtain between us and the world. And there is no other way that reference could be fixed, according to Putnam. This means that there are different and incompatible interpretations of our language that are equally correct. And this entails that an anti-realism is true. The of the uh, of what the different interpretations say. However, according to Thomists, there is something beyond efficient causality that can determine reference, namely relations of formal causality. The world itself is the formal cause of our thoughts when we think truly. And this means that the reference of our thoughts need not be accounted for in terms of relations of efficient causality alone. Hence, the arguments of Putnam and Quine against determinate reference are much less threatening to Thomist and Thomistic realism than to naturalistic forms of realism. Okay, I realize that there are a lot to take in here, uh, many different arguments, and unfortunately I have uh, saved the most difficult one to last, but uh, <laughs> I hope you have patience. Uh, there are two challenges against realism posed by the proponents of semantic anti-realism, and those challenges can be called the acquisition and the manifestation problems. Before we can understand those problems, we must take a look at what semantic anti-realism says. So semantics is the science of meaning, linguistic meaning, and meaning, of course, is closely connected to truth. This is why anti-realism about truth is called semantic anti-realism. A common view in semantics is that the meaning of any statement is constituted by its truth conditions. So, for example, to grasp the meaning of the statement snow is white is to know under what conditions this sentence would be true. Now, semantic realists hold that some propositions or statements can have truth, condi truth conditions that are recognition transcendent. This difficult word simply means that we have no ability to recognize whether the truth conditions in question obtain or not. For example, the truth condition of Goldbach's conjecture seems to be recognition transcendent. Goldbach's conjecture is a mathematical proposition that says that every even number is the sum of two primes. There is no way to prove this conjecture, apparently. And so we have no way of determining whether it is true or false. Realists with respect to mathematical propositions, however, hold that Goldbach's conjecture nevertheless must be either true or false in virtue of how the mind-independent world objectively is. And to understand the meaning of Goldbach's conjecture is to have a grasp of its recognition transcendent truth condition. Semantic anti-realists, on the other hand, 
claim that the meaning of a proposition cannot consist in recognition transcendent truth conditions, but must instead be identified with the conditions under which it would be appropriate or justified to assert a proposition. And these condition must, conditions must be such that we are, at least in ideal circumstances, able to recognize when they obtain. If there is no way to determine the truth value of a proposition, then that proposition does not have a determinate truth value. It is neither true nor false, according to anti-realists. Hence, since Goldbach's conjecture is undecidable, we have no means of ascertaining whether it's true or not. It follows that this proposition has no truth value. So instead of understanding truth as an objective relation between the world and a proposition, semantic anti-realists understand truth in epistemological terms. What is true or not depends on our epistemic capacities, our capacities for knowledge. And this is why this position seems to say that the world is dependent on us. Okay. Why uh, do semantic anti-realists think that we should accept this view? The philosopher Michael Dummett, who is a Catholic but at the same, same time an anti-realist, paradoxically as it may, may seem, uh, has proposed two arguments against semantic realism and in favor of semantic anti-realism. And those arguments can be seen as challenges also to Thomistic realism. The first argument is the acquisition problem. Suppose that realists are right and that the meaning of a proposition are giving, given by truth conditions that can be recognition transcendent that we cannot know. This means that we have no way of knowing when those conditions obtain. We have no access whatsoever to them. But how can a person, a child for instance, ever learn the meaning of an expression that has recognition transcendent truth condi conditions? The person's grasp of those truth conditions is supposed to constitute his grasp of the meaning of the expression. But how? could he grasp truth conditions that are in, principally, in principle beyond his cognitive reach? How could a child learn about the relation between a certain sentence and an in principle undetectable state of affairs that would make this sentence true? So this is the problem of how language acquis acquisition happens uh, if realism is true. The second argument is called the manifestation problem. Linguistic meaning is something public and there can be no aspects of meaning that cannot at least in principle be manifested by the way words and sentences are used. This is why most philosophers today agree with the slogan that meaning is use. Or at least they agree that meaning is closely connected to use. By use is meant linguistic behavior, for example, the behavior of speakers in assenting to a sentence under various conditions. For example, our understanding of the sentence, there is snow in Lublin, 
is manifested by the fact that we tend to assent to this sentence under certain conditions, namely when we see or otherwise come to know that there indeed is snow in Lublin. However, if we suppose that the meaning of some sentences is given by recognition transcendent truth conditions, then those truth conditions can have no impact on the way a speaker uses the sentences in question. We can never manifest or display our grasp of such truth conditions, since we can never know when they obtain. So the meaning of such sentences would be disconnected from any facts about speakers' linguistic behavior. But since meaning is use, this cannot be the case, according to the argument. And we must therefore reject the realist claim that sentences can have recognition transcendent truth conditions, or so Dummett claims at least. The general conclusion of both these arguments is that truth must be epistemic and understood in terms of verifiability or warranted assertability. What is true is what is verifiable or what is warranted to assert under certain knowable circumstances. And this of course is an anti-realist position, at least it seems to be very strongly anti-realist. But an interesting Thomistic response to both these arguments claim that they don't threaten Thomist realism at all. John Haldane has suggested that the Thomistic realist need not believe that meaningful statements can have recognition transcendent truth conditions. In other words, a Thomistic realist need not be a semantic realist. These two positions can be separated. So the Thomistic metaphysical realist shouldn't worry about the acquisition and the manifestation problems since they don't attack a claim that he makes. Or at least they don't attack a claim that the Thomist needs to make, according to Haldane. So how does Haldane arrive at this conclusion. He bases his claim on two theses that he regards as implicit, as implicit in Thomistic realism. And the first thesis is that conceptual capacity and recognitional capacity go hand in hand according to Thomism. There can be nothing more to meaning than belongs to conceptual capacity, and this in turn is restricted to recognitional capacity. And Haldane justifies this thesis by reference to the Thomistic principle that there is nothing more in the intellect, there is nothing in the intellect that is not first in the senses. We get all our concepts from the world itself. And this is why our conceptual capacities cannot outstrip our recognitional capacities. The second thesis that Haldane bases his argument on is the claim that it is not possible that the structure of reality may elude our conceptual powers. And Haldane justifies this claim by reference to the Thomistic idea that the world is intrinsically, intrinsically intelligible. The mind is essentially, for Thomists, a capacity to mirror or correspond to the world. This view seems to encourage, says Holden, the idea 
that no part of the world is in principle unthinkable. Hence, according to Haldane, the Thomistic realist has no necessary reason to advance a view of truth as essentially recognition transcendent even in the limit, and he has some reason to regard such a view as mysterious and perhaps even incoherent. So the Thomistic realists can acknowledge, together with the semantic anti-realists, that what we cannot recognize to be the case, we cannot think to be the case either. However, of course, for Haldane, our inability to think what we cannot possibly know has nothing to do with the anti-realist view that the world is dependent for its existence on our thought. It is exactly the other way around. Since our thought is totally dependent on the formal structure of the world, we cannot think things that the world has not somehow imprinted on us. Although I find Haldane's proposal very intriguing and interesting, it can be criticized and there has been a debate about it. I will not recount the arguments in that debate. Instead, I will suggest a possible counterexample that seems to falsify Haldane's view. Take the concept of an angel, which can define as a fine, be defined as a finite, purely spiritual substance. We learn what the concept spiritual means by reflecting on our own intellectual activity, and we learn what the substance is by abstraction from our experience of physical things. This way, we can understand what an angel is by combining substance and spiritual. And we can formulate statements about angels, for example, the statement that angels exist. According to the Christian faith, this is of course a true statement. However, we have no natural capacity to recognize whether angels exist or not. So the statement has recognition transcendent truth conditions. At least it could have recognition transcendent truth conditions since God could have chosen not to reveal to us that there are angels. Had he done so, the statement angels exist would still have been true, of course, but we would not have known that it is true and we would, would have no way of getting to know it either. Therefore, it seems that Thomists are committed to affirming at least the possibility of recognition transcendent truth conditions contra Haldane. This example about angels also shows that the existence of recognition transcendent truth conditions is fully compatible with the Thomist principle that all our concepts are ultimately derived from the senses. Thomists hence seem to be committed to semantic realism as well as ontological and epistemological realism. They must, in other words, affirm all three of the realist theses I presented earlier. Ontological, epistemological and semantic realism. If Haldane's very smooth proposal or solution fails, as I suspect it does, at least, then how should we address the challenges from semantic anti-realism? I will not go into depth in the, this question now. I will just 
finally suggest one way that atomists might handle the acquisition problem. This problem concerns, as we remember, how a person could ever learn and come to understand a sentence whose meaning consists of recognition transcendent truth conditions. But this riddle seems to be solvable in terms of the compositionality of linguistic meaning, a phenomenon which I used in my counterexample to Haldane's thesis. A person can acquire a conceptual understanding of a recognition transcendent state of affairs, such as the existence of angels, let's say, simply by acquiring an understanding of the constituent words that express this state of affairs and their mood of combination. So by understanding the words spiritual and substance and combining them, we can acquire an understanding of the sentence angels exist whose truth conditions seem to be recognition transcendent for us. Okay, since I think it would be so interesting to discuss this with you, I think I will stop there and uh, leave time for, for discussions. Thank you so much for, for listening. Here is uh, Umeå University in Northern Lights. <laughs> Here's a comparison. Angelicum and Umeå University. It's a good combination, I think. and perspectives regarding the, this problem within realism and truth, the ontological nature of how we come to know things. And it's, it's very good with insights. Uh, but perhaps first we can start with some questions from the audience. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
approaches, uh, modern approaches to development of knowledge. Uh, but my question is really following, because uh, in the case of, of uh, contemporary analytical philosophy, we have to do with, with uh, different language than use through Thomistic tradition. Therefore, my question is, if we discuss uh, from Thomistic perspective with uh, analytical uh, conception of knowledge of reality, using their language, if we uh, don't lose Thomistic understanding of Thomistic uh, uh, terms, principles, etc., etc. Thank you. Thank you, Father Duma, for this great question. Uh, I, I, think, I think you're right that there's definitely a, a risk uh, that uh, Thomism might, might lose its identity, so to speak, if, if uh, we, we go too deep into the analytic way of thinking. I, I'm sure you know that there's this movement called analytical Thomism, and John Haldane that I quoted uh, is a prominent representative of this, this, uh, this view. And I must say that I myself, since my background is in analytic philosophy, I have come to Thomism rather late. So I've, I have found this to be a very good road into the Thomistic way of thinking. Uh, if you're not so used with the Thomistic language, with the Thomistic categories, then uh, I think analytical Thomism might uh, give you a way into this this very different way of thinking. And now when I'm a bit more inside Thomism, I can see how convincing this world picture is. And I can see its strengths in relation to the analytic, uh, typical analytic philosophical perspective. Um, and I think that what's, what has uh, uh, what has, has um, uh, what I have not noted is that today many analytic philosophers are getting curious of St. Thomas and Aristotle and this whole scholastic way of, of, of thinking. They are kind of rediscovering resources there which they bring into analytic philosophy and, and kind of apply in their own way. So I, I mentioned Hilary Putnam, for instance. He, he talks about his latest... Uh, this, this is a guy who has changed his mind very many times. He, he started as a realist and he became some kind of anti-realist and now he calls himself a natural realist, but not a metaphysical realist and, and so on. So, but but uh, he talks about uh, an Aristotelian view of... He, he wants to propose an Aristotelian view of perception and cognition uh, without Aristotelian metaphysics. And John Holden has criticized him for this and said that, well, you cannot have <laughs> one without the other. Uh, and I think he, he's got a point there. But I think that uh, uh, the dialogue between the analytic philosophy and uh, Thomists 
and the Thomistic tradition is, is very important today. So I, I try to make a contribution, but at the same time I acknowledge the risk that our perspective will kind of take second place in relation to the, the analytic perspective. Did you, did you think about something particular in, in what I said? That, uh, My question was general. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. I would might have said uh, that uh, the term object is an analogical term. But a term or something? Object as an existence? Excuse me, object as... Uh, what do you mean by object? In yeah, I mean, the, 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 the idea here is that, is that uh, uh, the idea of an object uh, is understood mainly with reference to natural substances, that's the kind of paradigmatic examples of objects. But then you can also analogically extend the idea to other things that are kind of less object-like, less objectively unified than these natural substances. And you can call those things object, objects too, in an analogical sense, in a looser sense. And then you can even go so far as to call mind-dependent phenomena objects. You can say that there are mind-dependent objects that we construct and that have a much less uh, degree of objective reality than natural substances and so on. So, on. so uh, I asked uh, the term object or object itself? Now you say uh -huh. object itself. And yeah. Have you said about term? I, I, I think there must be both, mustn't it? That, that the, the concept, you, you, can, you can distinguish of course, of course between the concept of an object and the term object, these are two different things. So you can use the term in an analogical way and then I would say that the concept of an object uh, can also be used in an analogical way. I, I think I, I didn't mean anything deeper than, than, than that. sure that I follow your thought yes. here, but... Uh, yeah, I still don't have it well formulated. 
that we are, there is the world and there is us, for sure, but it's very difficult to say what is ours and what is of the world, because we are, our relationship with the world is very strong. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that <coughs> the, the difference between, uh, you refer to Descartes and his, his view of the mind-world relation, the difference between that kind of perspective and the Thomistic perspective is precisely with respect to the, so to speak, the closeness between the mind and, and the world, at least, at least as I understand St. Thomas's uh, uh, thought on this, on this subject. So, for Descartes, the mind is one thing uh, and the world is another thing and between those, these two things are only relations of efficient causality. And you can have a materialist version of Descartes' model. So you can, say, you can have exactly the same kind of, of thinking but be a materialist. So you say that the mind is identical to the brain. The mind is the brain and then there are only causal relations of course between the brain and the world. And then you have to explain how our thinking gets its grip on this external world that is only impacts on us, on our minds or our, bra our brains in terms of causal impacts. And that's a big problem and a problem that I think most analytic philosophers today acknowledge as a problem. It's called the problem of intentionality. How can thought be about the world? If, if thoughts are conceived as kind of independent uh, entities inside the mind, whether the mind is, is, is immaterial or whether the mind is the brain. Um, so I think the great strength of the Thomistic uh, view here is that it fundamentally rejects this kind of picture. It doesn't picture uh, the mind here, the world there, and then only causal relations. It, 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 uh, it uh, sees the mind, as I said, as an, as an essential openness to the world, a, a, a capacity to take in the formal elements of the world. So it's a much closer connection between mind and world in, in St. Thomas's uh, thought. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, also in connection with this relation between mind and the world, how do we explain it? Because now we are talking about, you know, what the, form, the forms the mind takes from the world. And now the question is, how do we give something to the world? In what sense do we give something to the world? And it seems that if we consider technology, if we consider medicine, that when you know, human beings begin to think the other way around. There seems to be some kind of revolution in the world, you know, from Descartes, Kant, and so on and so forth. Even when you're talking about uh, the concept of marriage and so on and so forth. It seems that when people begin to think of what to give to the world, there seems to be some kind of revolution. Mm -hmm. How do you connect this idea with our relation between the relation between the, the mind and the world, in the sense of taking forms and having a revolution of thinking of what we give to the world. Where do those ideas come from? 
Yeah. Uh, I think I think uh, of course this is a very very complex uh, question. It has many dimensions, and I, I focused in my lecture on on the kind of uh, knowledge relation, the cognitive relation between between uh, uh, mind and world, and. Uh, in that respect, I think if we look at the historical development in, in, in philosophy but also in, in the common culture, it's, it seems that uh, uh, today we are much more eager to think that we ourselves construct the world. In that sense, we give something to the world because we construct the world itself. And it, uh, it, 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 it comes to expression especially in areas that seem to be of great relevance for people. For instance, the area of sexuality, uh, where, where there is a great pressure, it's a great wish among some people to, to not having to take into account the nature, the objective nature of things. They, they don't want to hear anything about this, they, instead they want to kind of project their own understanding of sexuality onto reality and claim that this is how the world is, at least for me. And there is no objective dimension of this question, it's, it's, just, it's just a matter of construction. So I think that, that that's one um, uh, way the em emphasis has, has uh, changed since, uh, uh, yeah, since, since the, the, the advent of modernity. It has grown stronger. And it's a bit paradoxical because if you look at the Enlightenment, the, 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 the background to the Enlightenment was the scientific revolution and the scientific revolution aimed at understanding nature, to get a grasp of, of nature and its laws. How does nature work? And, but still, Enlightenment philosophers became more and more skeptical to our ability to really know anything about the objective world, to know anything about nature as it is in itself, as you see in David Hume and Immanuel Kant, for instance. So for Kant, we, we cannot really, we can know nature in the sense the nature we, we ourselves construct with our, with our categories and forms of, of, of um, thought and so on, but but uh, nature in its, or the world in itself it's, is inaccessible. So it's a paradoxical development where we, on the one hand, through science, we learn more and more about the world, but in philosophy we tend to get more and more anti-realist and more and more skeptical about the possibility of really knowing anything outside our, our own minds. And I think in that perspective it's, it's Thomism and the Thomist way of thinking about this question is very helpful and very refreshing and I think many analytic philosophers see that, see that as well, actually. Yes, I, I thank you for that because I also get confused at this point whereby in the scientific worldview, when we think of this revolution, we see progress, right? But in the philosophical point of view, when we have this other, this other way of thinking, we have some kind of skepticism. So, Sometimes it seems confusing to me. Yeah, it is, it is, it is confusing. And, uh, and of course one of the strongest arguments in favor of realism is uh, its explanatory power with respect to scientific progress. So 
uh, how come that uh, we have been become better and better to predict what will happen in the world through our scientific methods. We have been better and better, become better and better to mani manipulate the world. Uh, that seems to the best explanation of this progress seems to be that there really is a reality behind our theories. There is a reality that the theories describe and we get more and more insight into these realities and that's why our predictions become better and better. I think it's much harder for the anti-realists to explain why uh, to explain scientific progress simply. If, if reality is as we construct it um, why is it that, that later scientific theories are superior to the earlier? What's, what's the explanation to this? So, yeah, that's at least one, one line of reasoning. Also, if I, if I may ask one more question. You mentioned that thomistic realism can help us uh, predict future events. And uh, would that be like a problem for the the problem with, uh, with Hume's problem of induction is that we can never have like valid grounds, logical grounds, in which we can have or make future predictions. Um, yeah, I'm not sure that I. What's what's the impact like of this? The view of mystical realism and the problem of induction, like in, in terms of predicting future events. Okay. Yeah, I mean, from a Thomistic perspective, uh, the, th the, the problem of induction doesn't exist, I would say, because the problem of induction uh, presupposes that there is no necessary connection between cause and effect. So, so you have, uh, if you have, for example, David Hume's view of cause and effect, which, which is very widespread, I would say, today, then you have the cause is one thing, and the effect is another thing, and these are very loose. I think he uses this word, these are loose in relation to, to each other. And, and this means that uh, the only way we can establish some kind of um, relation between cause and effect is by this idea of constant correlation that we see that the same phenomenon is, is followed by another phenomenon and this happens over and over again and then we can hypothesize that well there is a causal relation between between these two and, and the, that, that's basically all that causality means and then the skeptical question of course arises how can we know that this correlation will continue in the future but uh, if you view as St. Thomas does that cause and effect uh, are uh, necessarily related then the same skeptical problem doesn't arise, I, I would say. Maybe, perhaps I have a question okay. about, uh, so you talked about how perhaps Thotonism needs uh, to accept ontological realism, epistemological realism, and semantic realism. But I have a question about this analytical aspect, about the analytic uh, Thotonism, uh, because for example, when I think of analytic traditions, for example, like in Wittgenstein, about uh, logical atoms, it seems that such kinds of theories, like logical atomism, cannot uh, uh, be compatible with, let's say, epistemological realism. And so, does that mean then that 
uh, analytic philosophy as a whole cannot accept these three different realisms? Or is something within analytic philosophy still able to accept them, like in analytic Thomism? Uh, I, I think uh, Wittgenstein is not necessarily representative, I think, of the broader analytic tradition. I mean, yeah. first there are different, you're referring to the first with Wittgenstein. Yes, with the Tractatus. Yeah. And of course, th there he was very much, uh, you can say, an analytic philosopher in accordance with the, with the mood of his, his time, which was very uh, influenced by logical positivism and, and, and things like that. Um, but, and of course, this movement of logical positivism, it, it kind of uh, went in a very phenomenalist direction. So Rudolf Carnap, for instance, he, he's not a realist, I, I don't think. <laughs> uh, so, so everything is a construction based on sense data and so on and so forth. And maybe you can understand the, 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 the early Wittgenstein as a little bit similar to that. Not, I, I, of course, he's much deeper and, and more well thought than, than, than logical positivism, but there's maybe some similarity. But if you look at analytic philosophy today and uh, how... I would say that most analytic philosophers are realists, actually. And... Uh, um, of course, you, you can be a realist about different things and, and many are, are non-realists about, say, mathematical objects or moral values and things like that. But there are many who are also are realists and astonishingly, astonishingly many analytic philosophers seem to be Platonists in, in, <laughs> in certain respects. So, but... but uh, um, I... I don't think, I think many analytical philosophers would accept ontological, epistemological and uh, semantic uh, realism. Um, I think the, the um, but my, my sense is, now I haven't studied this too deeply, but my sense is that they have bigger problems to counter these kind of anti-realist arguments that I have mentioned. Uh, than uh, Thomism, simply because Thomism Thomis has a richer ontology. We have a lot of ideas that we can work with that seem to point in an anti-skeptical direction. Then, of course, you can, you can always ask skeptical epistemological questions and say, how can you know that, and, and how can you know that there are forms, and, and, uh, and so on, and so forth. But, but, uh, as a, as a coherent system, I, I think that Thomism has great resources to address these kind of questions. Thank you. Yes. In this country, if I understood correctly, your um, defense against um, interest relative um, objection. Because it seems to me that uh, it is true that our the ultimately it is our interests that lead us to conceive of something as a whole thing. For example, I uh, a tree again conceive a tree as a whole as so one substance. 
or I can also conceive of a forest as a, an essence of a forest collection of. But it is because my interest to understand that group of objects that led me to, to consider it as a whole that would allow me to understand it. So, yeah, maybe recap here. Yeah, you're you're exactly right. I mean that that's uh, exactly how it how it works according to those who pr propose this kind of interest relativity of, of everything. And uh, um, I, I think that many many could say that uh, it's in our interest to see trees as distinct objects because. Uh, evolutionary, when we need food, we know that there are fruits in trees, and so we, we look for trees, and, and then we look for fruit, and then trees and fruits are distinct objects. But there are philosophers who say that this is just a psychological and perhaps evolutionary uh, explanation, an evolutionary uh, way of uh, um, individuating uh, objects. If you, if you look at our language as a whole, uh, it's, it's, you, you, can, you can interpret it in different ways. So for example, Quine, as I, as I, as I mentioned, is a philosopher who, who has this rather crazy sounding idea that uh, you could translate all our language about objects into a language about temporal stages of objects. Uh, so, for, for example, instead of talking about a rabbit, we talk about the, this temporal stage of the rabbit. <laughs> so, a rabbit is a series of temporal stages. Uh, and according to Quine, uh, all the behavioral evidence <coughs> that uh, can tell us what the meaning of our words are the meanings of our words are, uh, is compatible with a stage interpretation, uh, the interpretation of the, of, of the world in terms of stages of rabbits and stages of humans, etc. If we make compensating adjustments in other parts of our language, so we can translate, when you say there's a rabbit, I can interpret you as saying there's a, a, a rabbit stage. Uh, and then I just make compensating adjustments in other parts of our language to, to make things come up right when you talk about other stuff. And, uh, uh, and why then do we talk about whole rabbits and not rabbit stages? And well, then you can appeal to interest and say that um, there's an evolutionary interest or uh, interest for survival in. in in, uh, in chasing rabbits, and then it might be more convenient to think of uh, rabbits as, as uh, continuous objects. Uh, because if you chase a rabbit stage, then you have to chase many rabbit stages. And, uh, yeah. I don't know if that answered your question, but uh, uh, if, if, if it became any clearer for you what, what, what's meant with interest relativity. Your answer was that it's not dependent on or our interests on things, 
is not solely based on our evolution or pragmatic needs. I mean that's one way of seeing it. Uh, that you can you can you can think in terms of evolutionary interests, or you can think in terms of culture interests, personal interests, individual interests, and all all levels. And of course, if you think in terms of evolutionary interests, you 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 have to account for you have to make your view of interest relativity compatible with an understanding of evolution as some kind of objective phenomenon that can explain why we think in certain ways. So, so it might, might not be too easy for an anti-realist to appeal to evolution in that way. I, I don't know why I haven't thought about it uh, that much, but uh, yeah.